Will you introduce yourself and say um, what we're doing here? We're doing a benefit for Syrian refugee children. Mm -hmm. Okay. And will you introduce yourself by your name? Yes. Am I doing that now? Yeah. Am I? Do I hold a mic or my? You're oh, your mic. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is this okay? I'm a little confused. What is this for, by the way? <laughs> it's for the podcast. Okay. So, hello everyone. I'm Todd Barry, <laughs> extremely famous comedian. I'm donating my time tonight to uh, a benefit for Syrian refugee children. This is Mave in America, the comedy special. Last week, myself and some comedy friends put on a show at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York to raise funds for an extraordinary organization called Inara. They're a non-profit who provide medical care for children from conflict areas who are unable to access treatment due to war. Basically, they do amazing work for beautiful Syrian children. Last year I was on Todd Barry's podcast and I was talking about comedy being useless in the face of all these terrible things that are happening and he encouraged me to just, you know, do something about it. So we did a fundraiser for Syria then and we're doing it again this year. I forgot I was the, oh, the reason this is all happening. I wouldn't say reason, I'd say the reason is the children. <laughs> you know what I meant. This series is immigration stories told by people who've lived them. And this comedy special is a mix of stand-up and it's backstage interviews. And I'm really glad that we got to tape it and share it with you. But so you know, there are definitely swear words and there's totally sex talk and there's a lot of laughs. So if you have kids around or you have a weak constitution yourself, you better watch out. It was a great show. The only thing you might notice that's not cool is that it was male dominated, which is a pity. I booked women on the show, I always do, but because women are so great and funny, two of them ended up getting big fancy TV gigs in LA that very week. But you know what? I think that this show will prove to you that men, some men, they can be funny too. Okay, I'm gonna bring on our first stand-up of the night. Please put your hands together and give a really warm welcome to the Brooklyn native, Tanael Joaquin. I, I am not a Brooklyn native, as you can tell, based on what I sound like. Native means where you're born. Do I have to teach English to Irish people? Is that what I have to do? <laughs> I have an accent because I'm from a different place. That's how accents work. It'd be weird if I sounded like this and then I was like, yeah, I was born in Bed-Stuy. <laughs> it's fun having an accent because you get to find out who's an idiot when you talk to people. You do. Like this girl came up to me recently. She goes, you have a bit of an accent. Where are you from? I said, I'm from Haiti. I'm Haitian. She goes, oh my God, that is like so cute. I have never been to Africa before. <laughs> I was like, well, that's amazing, because me neither. I've never been to Africa in my life. I was offended for a second. How the hell do you not know that Haiti is in Brooklyn? How is that even a question? I thought everybody knew. I came over to a lot of Haitian kids, if you get lucky enough, you want to come and get an education in America. So I came over for that, and then 
I screwed it all up, I become a comedian. <laughs> and my parents are really mad about that. A lot of times, immigrants' first language is not English, and jokes are sort of the hardest thing to translate, actually. Yes, a lot of jokes don't cross over because they're, they're rooted in the language that they're in. I had to joke about concepts and ideas more so than the language. I have a thing with names. People's names fascinate me, because when you meet someone, you learn their names. It's supposed to give you like inside information about who they might be. The name is supposed to match. Sometimes I meet people, I'm like, you're not that. You know? Sometimes I meet old people, and they have young names, and it's weird. Recently, I met an old guy, 97 years old, really old, almost dead at this point. <laughs> it's 97-year-old guy. You know what his name was? Kevin. Can't be Kevin at 97. <laughs> Kevin is a dumb young guy. That's who Kevin is. That's no grandpa Kevin. <laughs> Nobody's gonna sit by a fire listening to the wisdom of Kevin. <laughs> Kevin sucks. He's trying to be a DJ. He owns a hoverboard. He wears a t-shirt with a picture of a cat that says crushing pussy. That's the kind of guy Kevin is. What is the kind of like, what's the sense of humor and like how do people make each other laugh in Haiti? They just laugh in real life. I know people that are like so much funnier naturally than I am and it kind of makes me feel bad that I'm a comedian. Because when you're poor you have, to have, you have to have a sense of humor. What visa did you come on? And I came in with a F1 visa, mm -hmm. student visa, and when the earthquake happened in Haiti, they were giving this thing called a TPS, which is a temporary protected status. So I transferred over to that, and that's what I use now. I renew it every two years. It gives me the uh, freedom to work, and I have a social security, so I'm all good. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking to get a green card. That's my next step. Yeah. If you want to get married, I'm open to that. Okay, I'll get married to you, but I, that won't get oh. you a green card. But wait, you know, I think it's fine that you like made that joke because I make that joke too. But when an American says that to me, there's a bit of a sting because it's like, don't you guys understand you have like the most powerful passport almost in the world? They do. And that annoys me. I wish my passport had more clout. Like if you're American, you can go anywhere. You're Irish. Where can you go? Really anywhere, it's again, it's a very powerful passport. Man, yeah. how do I turn Haiti into Ireland? Um, I don't know. I think maybe it's something to do with race. <laughs> <laughs> Just move a bunch of white people to Haiti and then we'll be fine. Eugene Merman, everyone! Um... A friend of mine recently told me that when we were in elementary school, our teacher told her to stop being my friend because I was a loser. <laughs> Look, she had, she, she had a point. Um, then, the, so the crazy part is, she then showed my friend test scores to prove that I was a loser. So here's the thing. I get it if she was like, he's terrible at math and look at this. But what, like, how do you, what's the test we had? Like, I don't remember what the test was, but what's the test that proves that you're a loser? Like, was it like, what's your favorite food? And I wrote down sour cream. And she's like, who says that? That's insane. That kid's a loser. 
And she'd be right. That is an insane favorite food. My name is Eugene Merman, and I was born in Moscow, Russia. Do you know what, uh, why your parents moved here? Why they left the Soviet Union for America? Um, because it's, communism is terrible, and, uh, and I think they wanted uh, my brother and I to grow up uh, in a free society and have opportunities. Our phones were tapped by the KGB. My mom, the way she found out was that she had had a conversation with somebody, and then as she was hanging up the phone, she all of a sudden heard a high-pitched rewinding sound, and then the conversation she had just had in high speed and, and you don't know, like, was that a mistake or was that something to let the, you know that you're being recorded than to scare you? I just don't know. I think my mom also said that when I was born, uh, I looked very Jewish and she was like, we got to get him out of, out of Russia. <laughs> but yeah, I came to America as a refugee, but like not, not in immediate danger. When I was in, I think, third grade, the Russians had shot down like a Korean airliner. Russians were villains at the time. Mm. And so there was a lot of kids uh, being like, you're a villain. Do you remember what you said or you felt? I think I just sort of would go home crying. Did you ever blame your parents for like bringing you to this? No, it's, oh my God, no, it would have been way, way worse. Like what I'm describing is like, people were mean to me and it hurt me and it was hard, but there was no army that like marched on us like meeting like for like my parents like my dad grew up uh orphaned by world war ii so this very pleasant like new england town is is it was clearly much better you know even though it it's hard you know it's obviously hard but it's still much much better I'd rather no one was mean to me at Burger King, but it's much better than when war was around me. You're the only comedian that I've heard like on stage like talking about how you love America. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I get, I'm, I'm a person who came from a communist country where they tapped our phones, and now I'm a comedian who created sort of his own career. I really, really appreciate that fact. Um, that there was the chance to do this thing. I hope that it's clear that I love America, but fear Donald Trump. <laughs> I think that's, that's how I feel too. Yeah. And I love the idea of America still. Put your hands together. Welcome to the stage, Don Bronson! <laughs> Hello. I'm, I'm going to tell a story from when I started out in journalism because it's become horrifically timely. Um, here I am when I started out in the mid-90s. That's me with uh, an Islamic fundamentalist called Omar Bakri Muhammad who said he wouldn't rest until he saw the flag of Islam flying over Downing Street and then he outed me as a Jew at his jihad training camp um, in a place called Crawley, uh, which is... Uh, Near, near Gatwick Airport, uh, he said to all his jihad warriors, he said, look at me with the infidel John, who is a Jew? And they all went, ah! And I said, um, surely it's better to be a Jew than an atheist. And I heard someone in the crowd go, no, it isn't. Um, to this day, I have no idea why, because I am an atheist, why, of all the places I would assert my Jewishness for the only time in my life. 
I decided to choose a jihad training camp. <laughs> okay, my name is John Ronson. I come from Britain and I moved to the United States about four and a half years ago. Yeah. On the Queen Mary. We emigrated on the Queen Mary. Um, Which is maybe people who people who aren't like extremely rich and travel on, boat, on boats won't know what that is. So will you explain what the Queen Mary is? It's an ocean liner. Um, <laughs> we did it because of, um, of the dogs, because I got two dogs and I didn't want to subject them to the roar of the baggage hold. So I thought instead of giving them eight hours of agony, I'd give them seven days of unpleasantness. <laughs> uh, Could you go down and visit them? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 10 hours a day. 10 hours a day, we would all go and sit on this tiny little bit of deck where the dogs were allowed oh, to sit. And In uh, reality though, aren't you normally just with them one hour a day or something? Oh, but they were so miserable mm. in their little cages. But then on the last day, mm. I discovered something horrific, which was the extraordinary fact that there was another dog on the Queen Mary too. And this other dog had permission, like special dispensation, to sleep in its owner's bed. So we were like going like to these kennels with our poor dogs. Yeah. And there was this other dog that was that was like living like a like a king, sleeping in its owner's bed. And do you know why? It was well, a famous dog. It was a famous dog. It was Pudsey, the winner of Britain's <laughs> Got Talent 2012. <laughs> and I was outraged. For those of you who aren't in the know, Pudsey and his trainer Ashley, who is a human woman, are a British dog trick act. Pudsey is a Border Collie, Bichon Frise and Chinese Crested Powder Puff Cross. And the duo won big in 2012 at Britain's Got Talent. I thought, like, I voted for Pudsey twice in the heats <laughs> and the final. And now Pudsey oh. is, like, moving to New York like a fucking king. And here am I, like, in the kennels with my sad, wretched dogs. And then I thought, this gave me, like, this massive crisis of confidence. I was thinking, in London, I was Pudsey. In London, like, I could walk like a human, which is what Pudsey could do. <laughs> Whereas in New York, I, I don't know. Yeah. I was just this fucking dog in a kennel. I've, I mean, I've seen you in London and you have people like approaching you all. You're not like Rihanna level famous, but like people are like, oh, John, I love you. Yeah. Oh, I grew up listening to you, John. Oh, you, and people you're are maligning my fans as being these kind of privileged hipsters. That's what, they, that's <laughs> what the voice was saying. <laughs> You're saying that my fans... You picked that up from my voice. I was yes, doing an English person, person voice. You were doing a particular sort of English. It's true. Yeah. He's the best. You're going to love him. Meran Kagani! I'm an Iranian homo. I mean, first of all, they said it couldn't be done. <laughs> Our little dictator-elect Ahmadinejad spoke at Columbia University said there's no such thing as an Iranian homosexual, which made me feel like a mythical creature. I was like, look what I can do, but like, I'll do, I love dicks. I will do anything to make it about dicks. I'm so sorry. But like, it is by the generosity of conscientious citizens like you all that an immigrant fag of my magnitude that is just weapons-grade gay gets to come out and talk to Brooklyn like this. It 
is a miracle. Meron Kagani, born in London, England, came to America in 1979. You were born in London? Yeah, I was an anchor baby. My parents um, knew that the Iranian Revolution was coming. He, they were tipped off by a friend in the military who had actually introduced them. And he told them to have a kid outside of Iran because the revolution was surely coming. And this was in 1975 that he told them that, and the revolution didn't happen until 1979. Do you want to go back? Or not go back, you've never been there, but... Oh no, I've been there. Oh, I was there between, yeah. I was there from zero to three, and I was there from nine to 11. I'm a uh, sort of a documented homosexual, so I can't go back, or I'll be killed, so I can't go back. I would love to go back there. I mean, you know, the, the wealth that my family enjoys in Iran, the opulence that my family enjoys in Iran is very, very different than the sort of um, quality of life that we enjoy in America. I would love to go there and have bespoke things made for me and oh jewelry gosh. and suits. All of that sounds very alluring to me. And, um, and to see family and to, you know, breathe blue beloved air, as Emily Dickinson said, do you celebrate your Iranian heritage? Do you feel American? What do you feel, you know, identity? That's a wise? very curious question. Uh, I, uh, I love my language. I love Farsi. I love Iranian music. I love Iranian food. And I'm connected to Iranian music and I'm connected to Iranian food. And I'm, uh, I come from a long line of Iranian witches, honey, from like real female mystics. And I'm very connected to them. And I love my mother and I love... I love all the mysticism that I come from, but uh, you know, am I am I connected to a fascist, you know, theocratic republic? No, no, I'm not. So I'm I'm happy to to not be there for all of that hubbub. But uh, but no, of course I, I like. There's no. I've been fortunate enough to sort of have lots of friends who are creatures of two cultures and creatures of no country and. And so I don't feel deprived of anything. I feel, um, I think there are a lot of global refugees uh, right now. So I, I don't feel alone in my experience, but it would be nice to, you know, God, how nice would it be to sit on like an Iranian mountainside and, and breathe Iranian air that my ancestors have been breathing for, you know, 800 years. Mm -hmm. That would be lovely, but... You can't always get what you want, can you? But the bourbon in this country is delightful. And they don't have that in Iran. Let's be abundantly clear. Welcome back. I've taken over. I'm a sexy robot. No, it's me. Hey, while I've got your attention, any immigrants out there, I would love to hear what you're doing for the holidays. Please give me a call. 917-979-3560. And tell us your name, where you're from, where you're living, and what you're doing for the holidays. And we might put it in a show. You're listening to Mave in America, the comedy special. Up next is the fabulous Joel Kim Booster. You'll recognize him from last week's show. And here we are chatting backstage. I think um, the more traumatic your childhood, the better comedian you are. People who are who grew up in happy homes and didn't have any trauma are appropriating uh, comedy from those of us who did. So <laughs> I would appreciate it if you all stopped immediately. When people ask where I was born, though, it's so much more specific. And it's only in that moment that I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I wasn't born in the U.S., but I've just been here for so long and I've been immersed, you know, in 
uh, and brought up in this culture that it, it doesn't ever really occur to me that I'm not from here, I guess. Um, but people love to remind me that I'm not. So. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's just so, it's a weird, like, I think like for people of Asian descent, it is like this weird identity that we wear immediately on our faces that like, oh, immediately you're not from here mm -hmm. is something that um, I feel a lot from interactions with people with strangers that they're always asking, you know, like, where are you actually from? That's a question that I get a lot. And then of course, like it does, it, there is an uglier side of that too, where it's just, I've been, I cannot tell you how many times I have been told to go back to where I came from. And I mean, you have. yeah. Oh yeah. Lots of times. Um, mostly, mostly by trolls on the internet, but some people in real life too. And it is just like, okay, but like, I'm f uh, from here. My parents are from here. Like, this is where I grew up, you know. Um, it's just so bizarre. And is it when you say, when, when that happens, um, how do you deal? Um, I don't know. I guess a lot of that is how I developed like a comedic voice of just sort of like turning it into a joke or like, you know, and that's just sort of been my defense mechanism since I was young. I think... The election was very tough for all of us in this room, I imagine. Um, it was very tough for me. I've sort of finally made it to the final stage of grief, like this morning. I was just sitting in bed like, I don't know, maybe I'll like conversion therapy. You know, like what's, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? I could become straight. I don't know, you know, like. <sighs> that is truly wild, <laughs> like our vice president like fully believes if he shoots enough electricity into my body, I'll become straight, like he's a witch, you know? Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on there. It's very scary. I didn't even ask my mom until this year where I was born. I like didn't, I had no curiosity about it growing up. You know, I like live here, I don't care. I was born in Jeju, which is an island that for like years and years was known uh, f because it had like a matriarchal power structure, which within South Korea is like very unusual because it is, it is a very patriarchal sort of country. And, uh, you know, this little island, it's where because women drove the economy of this island. They were they're all free divers. They're um, called like sea women um, and they like dive for minutes um, with no equipment. And wow. it was the site of the largest female-led re rebellion during the Japanese uh, occupation. And it also, when I was like doing the research about where I was born, I was like, oh my god, my entire life makes sense now. Like, You're like part warrior, part mermaid. Yeah, exactly. And it's like so cool. And like, there's very little um, like religious presence on the island, which is also unusual for South Korea, um, which is sort of fantastic. There's a sex amusement park on the island. Um, I'm like, oh, why did it take me this long to figure out that, like, maybe this is a bad thing to say, but nothing about sort of the mainstream Korean culture that I've learned about has really um, been, it seemed attractive to me mm -hmm. as a person that, like, something I needed to sort of immerse myself in. And, of course, now I learn about this island and I'm like, it's everything that, like, <laughs> I love. And I, I just, like, can't, I can't wait to go now. It was hard for me growing up um, because, you know, like in the Midwest, like people have so many like preconceived notions about me as an Asian person. And, you know, because of the family I grew up in, like I don't meet a lot of cultural expectations of what an Asian person should be. You know, like I'm terrible at math. I don't know karate, you know. Um, my dick is huge, you know. So it's just like on and on and on and on and on and like constantly disappointing white people.
My name is Mike Berbiglia, and um, I'm a comedian, and I make films too, and I live in uh, Carroll Gardens. I was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, to a father who's Italian, last name Berbiglia. My mother's Irish, last name Mackenzie. Mm -hmm. My mother's grandparents came from Ireland through Canada to Buffalo, New York. And then my dad's grandparents came from Sicily through Ellis Island to like the Bushwick area. I grew up with my dad basically saying to me like, when I was a kid, it was hard to be Italian. You know what I mean? Like there was all that kind of like, like we were treated terribly and that kind of thing. And I'm like, well, I know some other groups that were treated worse, <laughs> but I take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, my dad's father was an electrician and, uh, and dug subway tunnels. Really? Yeah, so when you go into the, the um, transit museum in Brooklyn, they talk about how the subway tunnels were basically dug by like Italians and African Americans. <laughs> and it's a very, you know, it's a sad thing because a lot of them died. Yeah. When I ride the subway, it is with some small modicum of pride. Do you feel that? I do. I do. I love the subway. Um, I love living here in New York. Does everybody here live in New York? Yeah, you do. Cool. Isn't that good? Um, it's so good. I, uh, I love the subway and people are like, really? But I do. I really like the subway. I, um, I like the, the, you know, I saw like, he must have been four. I saw a toddler missing the subway the other day and he was like so furious. <laughs> oh, he got, the door is just closed. He was like, ah. And, uh, frowning as the train went by and um, just like, what are you late for? <laughs> I was going to cut a potato in half and colour it in paint and then make potato prints in school. Um, he like threw his sippy cup down. Black coffee spilled everywhere. <laughs> and um and I like how the subway like forces people together in a way. Like once I got on the train and this guy was like, no, 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 no. Like he, he, he was like telling me, don't sit down. And then I looked and which shows I was new at the time because I hadn't looked first. And there was like a pool of urine on the seat. Um, and, then, uh, and then he was like, you know, I, 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 I felt obliged. Like someone told me, I'm sorry for this boy. <laughs> Um, he was like, Some, someone told me not to sit there. Now, now I feel obliged to like, tell everybody else. And then, uh, and then like he got off the train and then it was like, you know, me and another guy were in charge of like not letting people. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so glad in that moment, I tore a sheet out of my notebook and, um, and I wrote like, be careful. And I floated it in the pool. <laughs> and there was like, a general murmur of approval. <laughs> oh, she, she did good. She did good.
That's almost it for today. Please check out all of the comics you heard and support them by watching their movies like Don't Think Twice. That's Mike Birbiglia's amazing film on iTunes. Or you could buy their albums. Or, in Todd Barry's case, you could congratulate him on his Letterman appearance. Because no matter how many years go by, it just means the world to him. And especially, please remember to donate to inara.org. Our final act is one of the world's most brilliant comedians and although she doesn't live here in the US, she was visiting and I found her set so funny and humane I had to include it. She's amazing. I was so glad that she was in town and we could nab her for this. I promised her money. She's not going to get it. Josie Long! Thank you so much. Hello, my name's Josie. I'm from uh, England. Um, it's nice to hang out with Maeve. She's from Ireland, which is a small town in the west of England. Um, <laughs> no, she's coming back. Um, hello. I'm very, very happy to be on uh, on this show. I think it's brilliant. I, um, I was just doing a show about... Um, the, what's happened in my country in the last six months and I was really scared that it wouldn't translate because what's happened is um, <laughs> you're a step ahead <laughs> yeah the, the far right won an election but I thought um, I, I can be for you like the ghost of Brexit yet to come <laughs> like I am an ambassador from the old country and I have much news <laughs> Um, <laughs> sent to, to help you with this. I um, I have got one thing that I genuinely think might be useful uh, in terms of like division and unity and things like that. And I think it's been really difficult. And I keep thinking about this quote from To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, in it, I, I assume that you've read it. In it, there's a bit where um, Atticus Finch is talking uh, to his daughter and you'll know that he's defending somebody who's on completely fraudulent charges, right? But he's defending him from everyone that he knows. And what he says is he says, we have to kill that mockingbird. (laughs) (laughs) Not one of you has read that book. (laughs) Seriously, not one of you. That's obviously not it. That's not even what I was setting up. Like I set up a whole division and unity and it's really difficult. And then I'm like, oh, we have to kill that bird. And you guys are like, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) You should go along with these things. That's how it all happened. Can't just go along with it. But I'm sorry, I don't want to fuck about it. I'll do you the proper quote because it's like, you know, it's, it's genuinely useful and I feel like it's got me through. What he says is he says, we must remember. Why is that bird looking at me? Tell that bird stop looking at me. Oh, mock away. You mock away, you're, there are consequences. That's not it. That's not the real quote at all. I'm so sorry. I, I will do it properly because I don't want to take the piss, right? I'll do the right one. This is what he says. He says, We must remember when we are done fighting these people that there's a bird on the loose. And we best. <laughs> it's not it. It's not it. You thought it was going to be it because my face was very serious. And you were like, oh, she's going to say a serious thing because she's really... Done it. I was just pretending in front of all of you. The first time I tried to do this in America, someone at the back just went, please stop. 
But then a little part of me was like, well, you've got 15 minutes, do it for the whole time, you know. And this is what he says. So he turns to his because if anything, it's important because he says, don't kill the mockingbird, like, it's the one thing you shouldn't do, because, you know, it sings just for pleasure. Because he turns to his daughter, and he says, it's bird killing time, is not, that's not it, and I'm so sorry. Because I'm aware as well that it's diminishing returns. <laughs> and it's so hard because one of my friends was like, well, why don't you just keep going until nobody's laughing? <laughs> and I was like, that's my career plan, honey. Like, let's be real about it. But I do it because I'm a guest in your country. I'm a guest in your country. I don't want to fuck about. He says, we must remember when we are done fighting these people to start fighting birds because they're little, they're littler. And we'll get them, we'll get them better if we fight them. So he turns to his daughter. And he says... He says, fetch Papa's bird-killing knife. It's urgent. I'm sorry, because now you all know there's like a countdown on it, but I don't want to stop. But I will tell you the real one. But the problem is there's a couple of people laughing and they have very distinctive laughs. And in itself, it's like birdsong. And I feel like that's... Okay. And also, it's kind of my dream as a comedian to do things that are so niche that they disproportionately entertain one person at a time. That's like my dream show, like bang, 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 no one. You all laugh once, but you laugh alone. It's like dying, everyone, one at a time. So he turns to his daughter. He says, we must remember when we are done fighting these people that they are still our friends and also to kill a mockingbird. <laughs> the last bit is not it. <laughs> To be honest, I'm finding it very difficult to sort of uh, get beyond my animosity when it comes to Brexit and Trump. I'm so angry and so frustrated and I've never felt so alienated in lots of ways. But genuinely, the way I feel a bit is like more than ever, I want not to give up. Like more than ever, I want to be more humane and work harder, even when things seem even more grave and frightening. Like more than ever, I feel desperate to cling to my political beliefs. Like I feel desperate to try and do anything. And I, I know it's frightening and I know it's hard. And I do live in a trailer park with my mum and I'm still here to say fuck the free world um, the last bit is from 8 Mile by Eminem but it's useful thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it Josie Long thanks everyone good night good night good night Thank you so much to all of the comics who gave up their time and jokes and to the inspiring Arwa Damon who founded Inara and Sam Goff for organising. Huge love for Andrew Mum, Shannon Manning and all the staff of The Bell House. Maven America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Look Media. This episode was produced by Naomi Westwater-Weeks and myself, Maeve Higgins, with help from Shayna Feinberg, Julie Smith-Clem, Erica Romero, Matt Chiltz and Pat Masidi-Miller, who wrote our theme music. The show was engineered by Aaron Bastinelli and Ted Muldoon. Thank you to Lethal Molad and First Look Media. 
Come visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Maven America, where you'll find tons of photos of and information about our comedians. And immigrant or not, please rate and review this show on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. More to come next week. I'm a good podcast guest, right?